Dr. Miracle in the Rue Morgue is guilty of four murders so far this week. And by now, perhaps a fifth. To the bloody pit. I am here once again with that uh, hirsute uh, artiste, I guess we'll call you. Uh, Mark Maddox has returned to the pit to discuss yet another classic, or not so classic, of the horror film genre. Mark, what have you been up to lately? I haven't really had anything going on. <laughs> really? Not been busy at all? <laughs> you lying no. sack of crap. People out there in the world, Rodney's had to hear my tale of woe. Yeah, I'm real busy doing monster monster artwork for all you monster fans. I have been really busy. Blu-ray covers, magazine covers, uh, private commissions, well, all kind of stuff. It's been good. Everything's been great. Speaking, speaking of that, man, uh, they just announced today... Uh, Shout Factory, I'm sorry, Scream Factory is doing uh, The Evil of Frankenstein, one of my favorite of the Hammer Frankenstein films, and of course you have done the cover for it. You, you know, this cover, and I, I did put this online, but I want this recorded someplace for posterity, and Rodney, <laughs> okay. you got it. In, <laughs> in 1969, this, this is why I love uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood so much, because the year that that movie takes place is the year I moved back to this country from uh, from Germany. My father lived, was in the Air Force, and we, we came back to this country, but I didn't remember it. I was too little to remember us living in Florida as a, as a kid. Come back to Germany, uh, from Germany uh, to South Dakota, uh, which is uh, Ellsworth Air Force Base, and they had um, a thing called uh, Science Fiction Theater Saturday Afternoons. And I had always wanted to see a Frankenstein movie. I thought I heard the name Frankenstein. I had seen pictures in Famous Monsters of Filmland. The cover that drove me mad was Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. I want to say it was close to issue 50, like 48 or something like that by with a Ron Cobb recreation. And so I always wanted to see something. I love Frankenstein, but I had never seen Frankenstein. And so one day they were showing a real boring movie on science fiction theater, and I'll leave that name for some other time. But then they showed the previews for next week, and it shows this monster coming through the door with a wrought iron bar with Peter Cushing as the Dr. Frankenstein. He grabs a lamp, knocks it, knocks the top off it, and turns the flame up, and they're going at it, battling each other. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> And so immediately, I was like so excited. I was actually going to see a Frankenstein movie, not some knockoff, a Frankenstein movie with a Frankenstein monster. The next week I watched it, it was the version with the NBC Extra United States footage they had filmed to pad it yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. And then when I saw it later, I said, I thought there was more, more in this film, but I didn't realize it was not necessary. But – the that that next weekend I watched that film I was totally happy and I sat down with typewriter paper and crayons and drew out Kiwi Kingston's Frankenstein standing here with that wrought iron bar I remember doing that specifically come 50 years later and I get a text or a, an email 
from Scream Factory saying, hey, how'd you like to do the cover for Evil of Frankenstein? 50 years, not too far off from the month that I saw it. And and I said, I'm going to do exactly the same thing. Kiwi Kingston with a wrought iron bar and Peter Cushion with the end. And, and it's like, it's weird. I mean, I'm going to say this. <laughs> sounds funny. It's not oh, spiritual. But to me, it really meant just an incredible, it, it meant, meant the world to me to do that cover. So I'm ecstatic about it. Well, I mean, it, it's a great looking piece of art as as per usual. Not to not to suck you too hard there, but the uh, <laughs> it is a fantastic cover. And I just say I just have to say that they announced it today. But we <laughs> <laughs> that's okay, Rodney. Suck as hard as you want. <laughs> <laughs> They've announced it today, but they didn't tell us. Uh, they didn't give us any idea of what the extras are going to be yet. And I'm I am hoping that somehow or another they're able to get their hands on all that extra footage that was shot to pad it out for television viewing. Oh, they've already got it. Yes, they that, do. Yeah, as a matter of fact, the guy. Oh God, uh, Don, 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 uh, 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 wrote me today, told me how excited he was to hear about me, you know, doing the cover, and said he had provided the copy. So it's going to awesome. be in there. Yeah, well, until you watch it and you're like, you know, you're, you're falling asleep on it. I've seen oh, no, I've seen it. I've already seen it. I've got a, a, a bad DVD-R of it laying around I've had for I, years. But it's just, I, it's such a weird bit of film history to, to have a kind of complete package for that movie. It almost has to be on there or there's, you know, there's something left off of it that, off of it that would make the little film geek in me kind of a little unhappy, no matter how perfect the film looked. I, I agree. I agree. Let me, let me ask you something. Uh, it's your show, but I'm taking over for a second. Okay. <laughs> Do you remember, are you old enough? Cause I know I'm older than you. You can make your old man jokes, but do you remember them doing the, a movie that I actually like, but putting it on television and padding the hell out of it? Two minute warning with Charlton Heston. Do you oh, well, sadly, no, I don't, because I still to this day have not yet seen that movie. <gasps> well, okay. Do you remember another Charlton Heston movie they put on, and they put extra footage into it, Earthquake? No, I've read about that, but I never saw Earthquake until video years later. Right. Okay, so it was back to the its original form. Yeah. There is stuff in Two Minute Warning. There's like this whole extra thing. Oh, you, you know the basic plot. You're like at some giant yeah. football game, and there's a sniper up at the top, and the SWAT guys are going to try to take him out, but the, the sniper starts taking out the SWAT guys. And it's 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 kind of like the, the first part of the movie is kind of boring and boring. Every time they show the guy building his rifle, it's like, oh, don't, 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 don't. <laughs> You know, say, okay, we did, you did this 40 times already. Let's get to the dang. But the last 30 minutes kind of makes up for it. Well, what did they add to it to pad it out though? They added a robbery across the street with, uh, who's the lead guy from, uh, there was character actors. I want to say one of them was the guy that called Scarface a fucking little monkey in, uh, in Scarface, you know, you fucking little monkey. And mm. then the, and then, uh, uh, James Olsen or whatever from, uh, um, Andromeda strain. Is that right? James Olsen, the, the, the lead, the, the, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know the actor you're talking about, but I can't, I, I can't moon zero can two moon zero two guy. Anyway, and him yeah. and then another, one or two other guys. And they're like robbing an art gallery across the street. And they're, and they're like stealing like these super fantastic paintings, these class, they're cutting them out of the frames real quick with a knife and then throwing them into the, into the van or whatever. Anyway. So when the sniper starts shooting, this is the extra footage. I mean, there, there. This is whole robbery thing going on, and then when they're running out, 
uh, everybody's running out of the stadium when the sniper starts shooting, they push some of the guys down or something like that. Or somebody gets mad that there's a van in the way and the, the crowd tips the van over with the, with the burglars or the thieves in it. And I'm like, Oh my God, it's just like, so, Oh my Lord. They, I, I just looked this up. You're right. That due to the film's explicit violence and uncomfortable detail of a homicidal sniper acting alone and without apparent motive, NBC negotiated with universal studios to, to film additional scenes for its television premiere in 78. The new scenes would detail an art theft with the sniper serving as a decoy so robbers could escape without detection. The additional scenes totaling 40 minutes in length were added to the film's TV showing while 45 minutes of the original version were removed. Yeah, and I'll tell you this. It's out now on Blu-ray. I think, I don't know if it's Kino or, or Shout Factory or who did it. Just Just pick it up. It's fun. It's worth it. It's great to see, you know, you know, people pick on Charlton Heston, but God knows I love Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston is like William Shatner. William Shatner is to TV what Charlton Heston is to cinema. It's like if you got no money on your special effects, you still got Charlton Heston. If you got no money for your special effects, you still got William Shatner. It's like <laughs> it's like they kind of fill in a void that the special effects de- when the special effects department doesn't have a budget. But it's him working with um, uh, John Cassavetes in the movie. And is it a great movie? No. But do I, I like it? Yeah. Yeah, I really do. I mean, I can't help it. And I was watching it. You know, I, I, I bought the Blu-ray, came to the house, put it on. I'm like, this is a little, little bit not so good. But when it got to that last 30 minutes, I like, go, okay, this kind of makes up for it. Well, the cast is interesting. I mean, you know, Mark Balsam, Jack Klugman, Gina Rowlands, Walter Pigeon. Brock Peters. Cassavetes is in it. Yeah, yeah. Cassavetes yeah. has got this look of like I'm just using this to, you know, put put the money together for my next real film. But, <laughs> exactly. And and I will say was, this. Yeah. I, I you know, as a kid you didn't know that people wore rugs, but man oh man, you watch Heston in this one, man. That sucker is like a, it seems like he's got a tribble on top of his head. <laughs> but I still love Charlton Heston. I do not care. Anybody, you know, I don't care. I love Chuck Heston. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, though. If we're going to start talking about rugs, i got to ask. The, the film we're talking about tonight has an amazing, and I have to I have to say, beautiful wig in it. <laughs> and I actually do want to talk about that wig. Yeah, and it's, because, across, and it's across the lead actor's eyebrows. Oh, it's not, it's, I'm not, we're not even getting to the eyebrows yet. <laughs> Hold on. People, tonight we're talking about Murders in the Room Morgue from 1932. Not the first film adaptation of Poe's story. But uh, one of the most interesting and definitely the most impressive in a lot of different ways. Of course, it stars Bella Lugosi, so what else could you think? But I'm talking about the wig Lugosi wears in it, which is, it's first of all, it's it's fantastic. It's, it's, it's indistinguishable from actual hair until you realize, fuck, that's Lugosi. That's not his freaking hair. Yeah. And then, of course, he has what is, without a doubt, the most evil unibrow in, the, in, the, in all of film history. I mean... The, the, this thing actually should get star billing right next to Bela Lugosi's name. <laughs> Bela Lugosi's eyebrow. Yeah, Bela Lugosi's yeah. eyebrows in this film are a special effect unto themselves because without a doubt, those eyebrows, or I'm sorry, that eyebrow, it's singular, uh, it communicates so much emotion with his facial with his facial movements that it just might as well, I mean, they just should have, should have signed off on a special award for the fucking thing in 32. You know, you know what it looks like is um, Lugosi's character, Doctor Morocco, had a normal eyebrow, right? <laughs> normal or normal two two eyebrows, and he saw a tarantula crawling across his desk, and he smashed it 
flat down with the palm of his hand, and then rolled it up like a cigar and then smacked it to his forehead. That's a that's a dead tarantula that's been rolled up just like a stogie. And just stuck you know? stuck right <laughs> above his nose, yeah. It's it's you know, yeah. I matter of fact, I was watching it again uh, recently, and uh, my sweetheart Linda comes walking through the room, and she goes, "Oh, he looks bad." <laughs> that was <laughs> like, well, how do you argue with that? You know, but let's talk oh, well, about let's, this film. Well, yeah, let's, well, let's roll let's up our sleeves. This. Let's rock and roll. Let, let's let's discuss one of my favorite things. First of all, one of the major complaints about this film, and it's and it's hard to really step aside. There from are no that. complaints. Oh yes, yes, there are. I've been re- no, no, I've been reading no them. Unfortunately, I, don't, I, I reject them. Well, well, hold on. Let me <laughs> let me get them out there. Did you reject them? A couple of weeks ago, I was with you. I I, get, I vented on the film a little bit, and you're like, "Well, Mark, no, I don't think. It, no, there's nothing wrong with it." If oh, that, understand. If was, this is not my perspective. I'm just telling you the general perspective that's out there about this film, which is that Lugosi gives easily the best performance in the film, and that's kind of universally said. And I don't think you'll disagree with that. But, I think everybody's good. But the rest of the actors, <laughs> to a degree, and I can see this. Because I, I love silent movies, a lot of the other actors in the movie, at times, not in every scene, but they seem to be acting as if they're still in a silent movie. There's a little too much overacting and overexpressive facial expression. Uh, there's, uh, there, there's too much of the uh, older silent film style of acting, something that was kind of a carryover from having to project the cheap seats in, uh, in stage productions. Now, yeah. I don't mind that kind of thing. And uh, I think that Lugosi clearly understood, mainly because he's he's an actor who knows when he's getting a close-up, so he knows that he doesn't have to, you know, push everything all the way back to the cheap seats to be, you know, to be clear. But Lugosi is fantastic. There are several points in the movie where he is so mesmerizing in his delivery of dialogue, and his dialogue, it's, it's his dialogue in the movie that doesn't seem to have been, uh, shall we say, watered down as some of the other dialogue, which gets a little banal, it seems to be. Let's put it this way. The lovey-dovey talk in this movie is terrible. <laughs> the lovey-dovey talk between uh, Sidney Fox and uh, Leon Ames, there, it is, it's, it's miserable. It's, mm. it's the constant... It, 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 if this guy, honestly, if he, was, if he was pitching woo, this is woo that would have been slapped right back in his face if the script had called for him to actually get to kiss the girl. So I can see what they were talking about with the acting because there are moments in the movie where it is that older style of acting. And the thing is, I I don't think it's something that I give uh, I have to give the film, you know, a pass on because I actually like that kind of thing. I actually like a film that is so much of a piece of its of the time it's made, and especially a film that is very much trying to be of the period it's I mean it's supposed to be eighteen forty five. So right. I very much like that it's this arch style of doing things that kind of adds to the proceedings. It adds to a kind of, I wouldn't say otherworldliness, but at least it feels like a different time and place. And some of that acting is part of it for me. You know, for me, it's all about Monday morning quarterback stuff. In this case, the Monday morning quarterback stuff is 80 years later. Um, I understand your point of view on it we got to understand something here movies really kind of had just become sound only a year or two earlier yeah yeah 
You look at Dracula with this very long pauses. By the way, I think Dracula is almost a perfect movie. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care about the it's too slow. It's not as good as a Spanish version. Bullshit. It's a great it's a great movie. It's it's almost perfect to me. I watch it multiple times a year. The fact that you are in the transition between silent and sound plus film grain, movie theaters, speakers in the theater they're a yeah. lot, they were a lot weaker. I mean, nowadays, what we have in our homes with a large television set beats the pants off of most cinemas, you know, up until the, the, the widescreen spectaculars. Yeah, agreed. And so when I see these movies, I, I immediately run it through the filter of, okay, what year is this? Because I, I, I thought for a while this movie was 1933, and then I said, no, it's 1932, and it's like shot – right after Frankenstein was shot. I mean, like almost within days. So that and Dracula are, they're right on their heels. And so these movies, I give almost the silent film pass. It's almost like I I look at it and I feel totally fine with it. Um, Well, I I mean, it feels very much a piece with the style and the, the cinematically of Dracula from 31 and Frankenstein from 31 because yeah. I mean all three of these films don't have a score and in yeah. each case the fact that they don't have a score actually often works to the film's credit because uh, I mean like there are certain scenes in this movie that if they if they had tried to like bed some music underneath these scenes I think they'd be less effective it's to me. It's what I call when people get Dracula's not that good of a movie, and this isn't that good of a movie, and that isn't that good of a movie. It's like you know what, and yet you drool over Stanley Kubrick or David Lynch, where they have a scene that goes on forever just to continue to build tension, and I that's what I see. I see somebody from back then knowing that they're keeping the camera on to make you sort of like uncomfortable in your chair. When thing you know what I'm saying? Well, I, th- I I think that in some cases I can understand what you're saying, but in other cases it's a question of the the technical capabilities at the time, which doesn't make it a you know less cinematic for me. It just makes me enjoy what they were able to accomplish that much more. So I'm not. It doesn't. I don't. It doesn't I'm, I'm take points. An, it doesn't take points name. away from me, as far as I'm concerned. It doesn't take points away from the film. It kind of gives it some cred in a way because they're having to work a lot harder because they're on the forefront of discovering how to do this shit in the first place. Right. And um. But I'm I'm thinking about the scene with, uh, you know, Dracula. We're we're talking about the film Dracula, not not Rue Morgue, but um, where he goes. You know, I've chartered the ship. We will leave tomorrow evening and it just goes on and on and hangs on (laughs) but it makes you just sort of go yeah that's intentional i think people i think people don't understand that 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 it was intentional i think even then he knew browning knew what he was doing when he did that so like this film has that kind of a pacing to it now i'm gonna defend the the uh the, the 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 goody goody actors in this film too i i like our hero I, I, there's something about him I genuinely like. Oh, he's fine. Uh, he's fine. I think Sydney Fox is better, but I think Sydney Fox is fine. I think they're both fine. I I don't dislike either one of them. I think that uh, Sydney Fox, the lady who plays her her, uh, her mom, yes, uh, yes, is, is really good. Uh, the one guy's in there. His uh, his uh, school chum. 
who I guess apparently did a lot of comedy, was yeah, in there for comic relief. He was in the Keystone Cops, I think. Keystone Cops, yes, that was it. And um, and there were you know other characters in there, but I found myself. I don't know. I mean, I don't have any problem. I run it, like I said, once again, I'm running it through the 1932 filter. Yeah, yeah. And I will say this, that probably at the time when that guy was saying those very corny lines to that girl in that film, I'll bet you most of the people looked, thought it was totally fine. We are in a very different era. We're in a very – I mean, you know, I mean, freaking looking for Mr. Goodbar is 40 years old. You know what I'm saying? Wow, well, that's a so weird how, thought. <laughs> well, yeah, but but yeah, and I'm thinking, how far removed are we from this film? It, it's almost like we're looking at something from Mars, and that's why when I look at this guy, you know, romancing her the way he is, I don't find a problem with it because I didn't live in 1932 or it's 18, a strange, or 1845. Yeah, which is what it's supposed to be, too. Yeah, you can even throw that in on top of it. But um, anyway, I, I think they're good. I know the man lived until uh, he was 91 years old. He lived until 1993, which I kind of wish I had known that because I used to run that film a lot on VHS. And I who, used who to. Lived, who lived to 93? Uh, our, our hero, the young. Oh, young oh man. Leon Ames, uh, yeah. Yeah. And he didn't speak kindly of the film either. No, but, he did know, not. <laughs> What the hell? What the hell does he know? He was just in it. Well, but, well uh, I, I have this. I mean, this is this is something that I think I, I, I dearly love Tom Weaver's book Universal Horrors, and I love I love going through it to get a to get an impression of uh, the general consensus on these films, and also to find out a lot of interesting production history because he he had the opportunity to interview a lot of these people. But I have to say that I'm gonna I'm gonna read this section out of uh, from the Universal Horrors book about this movie. And I'm gonna I'm gonna explain after I read this section out um, why I think what he's saying is the exact opposite from what he's saying uh, okay. from the book. He says, uh, like Dracula, Murders in the Room Org is best appreciated if the viewer is in a forgiving state of mind. The film's palpably European feel clashes with the English language dialogue and the American accents, only adding to an off-putting sense of strangeness and artificiality. Yes, I agree that there is an off-putting sense of strangeness and artificiality, but I would argue that the film is already striving for that visually in the first place by being so clearly influenced by the cabinet of Dr. Caligari with German expressionist imagery throughout its throughout the picture. And I think that to claim that uh, the European field is clashing with English language dialogue is... In my opinion, I think it's ridiculous to say, because this is this is something, and I've gone through this again and again and again with people talking about, especially silent movies, which is when you're re- when you're watching a silent movie, you're reading intertitles, or when you're watching a foreign film, you're reading subtitles unless it's dubbed, and then what you have here is what your memory does to your impression of the film. Your memories of the film are not of you reading dialogue. Your memory marries the dialogue you've read with the images that it was underneath. What you were seeing and reading merge into one single memory. And this is exactly what is happening with this film as well, which is, 
I'm not paying attention because it's it's completely it completely does not matter to me that yes this is supposed to be Paris in 18 in 1845 and these people are speaking English and they're very obviously Americans that really doesn't matter because what the casting was done to emphasize uh, differences of of uh, uh, accents was to cast Bella Lugosi as this obvious outsider. And how else? I mean, and he, because he, of course, sounds like no one else in the picture, right? And so the other characters who are from other other nationalities, when you have those three people in the latter part of the movie arguing about what kind of language they overheard, and each one of them has a different accent, this is a movie in English. So, yes, the main characters speak English, and that is not a, that's a feature, not a bug. And, and this is a feature that was factored into the production of the film quite obviously by surrounding those people who are to be taken as Parisians with people with other accents to emphasize their ethnicity not being the norm of the main characters. And so I, I find that kind of uh, that kind of uh, complaint about a movie of this type to be kind of silly on multiple fronts. Right. I agree. I mean, to me, you got you have to understand something. We're talking about, and I do, and I mean this with love, not as an insult. We're talking about the Hollywood machine. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about Fred and Ginger talking to each other, and the next thing you know, their feet are going, and they're they're dancing around an office space, perfectly coordinated with some music coming from someplace. We're talking about something that is surreal. You know, I mean, I've been to the opera, and I'm there, and I'm enjoying it you know, watching La Boheme or something like that. And then you're like, the sets are beautiful. You know, it's very emotional, very passionate, but you still pull back and realize you're seeing the backs of the heads of the patrons that are in front of you. And that there are sets that were constructed by people. We are always talking about a surreality, even in the, even in the most perfect of films we are watching a movie. We, we are having somebody put it, put on a punch and Judy show for us, yeah. but they yeah. might be very highly sophisticated at it. You know, you got punch and Judy or you got 2001, a space odyssey. It's still the same thing. It's just that Kubrick decided to be really, 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 really fucking serious about it. And so the, that's why when somebody starts talking about this thing, I mean, you can say this too about the movie. How many immigrants worked on this film? I mean, Carl Freund had worked on some of our absolute most favorite German films, Metropolis, for Christ's sake. You know, the movie is a is almost like a melting pot in itself of people who came from other countries, who worked on it and made this beautiful hybrid story. Yeah, my thing about the film is is how incredibly. I, 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 one thing I love that Stan Lee always said is like, you know, quit talking about what didn't work in something—a novel or a comic book or a movie—and be shocked as to how well what did work in it. And I, I mean, when I watch this film, I see a tour de force of the surrealistic world with these tilted buildings, yes, yes. little smokestacks. I mean. You know, we can sit there and talk about the guy, you know, saying, oh, you're like May Day, you know, the happy part, whatever, and talking to the girl on her patio. Camille, I love you. Let me look at you. You're like a flower. Soft and fragrant. Pure and beautiful. Oh, darling. And you're like a star, too. 
a white morning star. And your hair, it's full of stardust. You're like a song the girls of Provence sing on May Day, and like the dancing in Normandy on May Day, and like the wine in Burgundy on May Day. Oh, Camille, I love you. And I love you too, Pierre. But look at the buildings in the background with the little smokestacks and the buildings are tilted and all that kind of stuff. Or at the very end of the film where, you know, spoilers, <laughs> there's a, a, a gorilla is the killer. And if you don't know that about murders in the Rue Morgue, I, I don't feel sorry for you. I'm, I'm going to have to I'm gonna at have the to end of the film, out. I'm sorry. Why is that? Uh, <laughs> no, you're not. Liar. You picking on me. So. You you've got the guy that chases the gorilla to the to the very last building, the last rooftop that's right there next to the water. That is a painting in itself. Yes, it's beautiful. It's there is so much character to this on this movie. I literally did sketches of it wasn't Lugosi. I mean, I literally watched this film and then did like a variation of a theme of a guy standing up on a stage uh, with lights hitting him from below to where it threw a shadow up on the tarp behind him. And, you know, this beautiful, the, uh, the beautiful settings, the beautiful, the tent inside the tent, the whole, the fact that the entire uh, circus that they were at, you never really saw outside. I mean, it was all inside of something you could tell, yeah. you know, there was uh, the, uh, the 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 set of the mad scientist lab where basically he's like combining uh, seeing if he can combine the blood of his ape called Eric with with women, which by the way, I can't believe this one. Today I just found out that the the victim and let, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop here, back up, hit the hit the blu-ray to a certain moment. There's a knife fight in this movie. Yeah, yeah. I remember the first time I saw this film, I was at my uncle's house. My dad was in Vietnam. He goes, ah, come over, spend the night, have some ice cream, we'll watch some monster movies. I'm going to sit there. This movie came on. Even in like 1971, when this film came on, and I saw this knife fight between these two guys, I said, this is a lot more serious than a lot of stuff that's in Universal Films. Yeah, this is a it's dark really, movie. This is this is one of the darkest of these movies. It's incredibly it's 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 almost a bitter dark film. In a great way. Oh yeah, yeah. It I'm really, not I'm not saying really that as a criticism. Great. That's not it's, a criticism. No, no, at all. no, I know and I know you wouldn't. God knows, Rodney, I know you. <laughs> but the thing is, is that is that these two guys are having this drunken, slow knife fight and they're stabbing each other. And they both die. And, and they both die, and I was sort of like I remember seeing this as a kid, and I had seen you know several Universal monster movies, and I'm like, this is really pretty damn creepy. I mean, I didn't hate it by any means, but it kind of surprised me. And then he takes the woman who was a witness to the knife fight. You don't know whether it was a guy's fighting over this prostitute or whatever, whatever it was. It's never completely explained other than the fact that she's a prostitute if you're, if you're smart enough to figure it out. But it's Arlene Francis. Yeah. And Arlene Francis, to me, means one thing that I absolutely love, and it is the great film One Two Three with Jimmy Cagney, huh. or James Cagney, okay. about the Coca about the. Oh, you've never seen no, it. No, I never have. Oh, you goddamn traitor! <laughs> I'm now a it's traitor. It's about. It's about. It's about 
uh, Jimmy Cagney, like around 1961, did a movie with uh, Billy Wilder right. about a Coca-Cola salesman in Berlin. It's at the, it's it's the movie that made Jimmy Cagney quit. He's like, I'm tired. I'm not doing this anymore. Watch it, Rodney. Okay. We should do a show on it. But when you watch it, watch Cagney to the point of exhaustion, rifling dialogue out. But Arlene Francis is in it as his wife, and damn, is she, she is funny. She is really good. And then I find out that this woman I'm crazy about, it's this it's this uh, this prostitute from Murders in the Rue Morgue. So you know, we got this real terrible knife fight. The next thing you know, she's up on this weird sort of crucifixion-type cross. Not, not quite a cross. It's on its side. It's close enough. It's close enough, but it kind of reminds me more of the crucifix, that weird crucifix from the black cat. But she's strapped to it, and he's like got this probe going into her arm trying to get blood out of her to check, check, check her blood type and everything. And it's like this is pretty – this is pretty heavy duty, like kind of s- some of the stuff you saw on the covers of pulp magazines at the time. Yes, exactly. You know, with women being tortured and stuff, mm-hmm. and there's no hope and all that. Um, it, it is, it's, it's pretty damn cool. <laughs> I don't know it's how else to it's put amazing. It. It's it's one of the darkest. That whole sequence uh, in the quote unquote mad scientist lab. Well, first of all, that whole. You know, you do know that in the original, the original way the film was put together before they reshot stuff and re-edited the movie, the whole uh, prostitute and the knife fight, and uh, the whole section where she's taken back and you know he's doing experiments on her and then she dies. That was the beginning of the movie. <laughs> That's how the yeah. damn thing yeah. started originally, and uh, I, I just I cannot imagine how. I mean, think about the change in tone from how the movie starts now, where it starts at that carnival and introduces Lugosi's character in a very different way. Uh, I, I, th- I think that if it were humanly possible to rearrange the film in, the, in, that, in that original edit and have that be your introduction to this character and then you see his public-facing self, I think that would be an incredibly effective thing. But that whole think, mad scientist what, sequence. That sounds almost too modern. I mean, I'm gonna I'm not I don't yeah, mean yeah, that yeah. in a negative way, but it's almost like something you would see now where the first five to ten minutes are horrific, then you get a breather. That's the original and then intent, you go back though. To That's how they originally envisioned it. Isn't that amazing? Right. But different people have talked about different ways to edit this. And one of the reasons I'd never thought about it before, I'd never thought about uh, a version of this film that might be sequenced in a different manner until Tim Lucas wrote that article in Video Watchdog years ago where he posited a, a particular way of taking what is in the film right now and re-editing it to kind of approximate more of what was originally intended in the script and to kind of resequence things so that things uh, A, flow better and actually do... Uh, do follow uh, logically on to one another. That was his, that was an article on this film. Yes, exactly. Oh, uh, that's right. I remember the cover. I wanted to. Yeah, do yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not me, blood! Your blood is rotten. Black as your sins. You cheated me. Your beauty was a lie. Well, hold on a minute here. Before we go too much further, let me uh, let me jump in here. And uh, for those who are unaware, we've been talking around the plot just a little bit. Let me give a quick rundown of what actually happens in this one hour and one minute long film. Um, 
it it only glancingly resembles the Edgar Allan Poe story that it it takes the title of. Uh, it has some similarities, but uh, not not that many. Hold on. This is a movie that uh, takes place in Paris in 1845. Uh, Dr. Miracle, who is Bela Lugosi, is, uh, he's, uh, he's actually one of my all-time favorite mad scientists from this era. Mm. Uh, he abducts young women and injects them with ape blood in order to create a mate for his talking sideshow ape, Eric, uh, who's played by the greatest uh, gorilla performer possibly of all time. That'd be Charles Gamora, that Charlie Gamora, uh, who was yeah. an ape in so many movies that uh, to start to start down the list is to just, you know, giggle with delight at how many how many times you've seen this guy and never seen his face. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, young Pierre Dupin, who is the uh, the main, main character of Edgar Allan Poe's story, uh, in, the, in the movie here, he's a young, naive medical student and detective. And his fiancée, uh, Camille, who's played by Sidney Fox, uh, and he uh, lives with his best friend, Paul, and uh, he has a girlfriend named uh, Mignette, who's a silent film actress, by the way. Uh, this was her last film role. A film role, Edna Marion. She was a silent film actress, and this is the last movie she ever made. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Well, at the, be- at the beginning of the film, they visit uh, a carnival sideshow, including Miracle's sideshow, where he exhibits Eric the gorilla. Uh, both master and servant are enchanted by Camille, because uh, who wouldn't be enchanted by Sidney Fox, after all? To find out that she was only 4'11 only makes her dainty cuteness even more impressive, I think. Uh, uh, he invi- uh, he invites, uh, Miracle inv- invites her to come and take a closer look at Eric, who grabs Camille's bonnet. Uh, Dupin tries to get it back, but Eric then tries to strangle him. Uh, Miracle backs him, backs him off and offers Camille uh, a replacement bonnet, but... Uh, <laughs> She's a little reluctant and suspicious and doesn't really want to seem to give uh, the doctor her address, which I think is a wise move. And uh, when they leave, uh, Miracle orders his uh, servant, Janos, to follow her. Now, uh, Janos is played by uh, Noble Johnson, who was a, uh, an African-American actor who you've seen in a roughly trillion films. Uh, he was in uh, King Kong and The Most Dangerous Game. He was in The Mummy... He was in, uh, oh my lord, The Lives of a Bengal Lancer, where he plays Ram Singh, uh, Escape from Devil's Island. Uh, he had a small role in Lost Horizon. I remember from Hawk of the Wilderness, which was uh, uh, one of my favorite Republic serials that almost nobody else seems to have ever seen. Huh. But uh, he, he played a zombie in The Ghostbreakers. Wow. Uh, yeah, 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 that yeah. one. Yeah, that one. Yeah, it's a great, uh, I've never seen the film, but great imagery from it. Well, uh, he was also a native chief in the Mad Doctor of Market Street. Uh, he played, uh, in the 42 version of the Jungle Book, he played a Sikh. And, uh, yeah, trust me, Noble Johnson's kind of amazing. And I often wondered, even though I knew who he was, it wasn't until watching it, the film this time around that I took note of the fact that he does, as uh, Greg Mank points out on the commentary track, he appears to be in whiteface, making him look even weirder than he would. He he really kind of otherwise would. Um, yeah. yeah. Very strange looking character. Well, I mean, I think it works. I mean, we're 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 talking about distortion here. We're not talking yeah. about yeah. We're not talking about a clear line with it either. Buildings are distorted. I mean, you know the 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 old uh, 
building that Morocco is in. It's gorgeous. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just this weird sort of – I mean, the, they definitely truck that stuff over from Europe, that thought process. Yes, for, very from, much from so. Like this, is, this is expressionism shot, shot on a decent budget in Hollywood. And I, and I can't stress that enough. That's that's my thing. I mean, I have been fascinated by Caligari, by Nosferatu, by you know so many things that just have this beautiful distortion to them. And this is one of the last great hurrahs of films of that time until decades later when it's done almost in a humorous way by Tim Burton. You yeah, know? yeah. I mean, I love the look of this movie. Uh, the the uh, and and I don't, I don't want to say it's a movie all about buildings with nothing going on with the people. That's just not true. But uh, everything's weird about it. Noble Johnson's weird. Bella Lugosi's weird. Uh, and yes, our hero and and heroine and 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 the sidekicks and all that kind of stuff. They're uh, stereotypes isn't the right word. They're very uh, stylized in their own ways too. Like you said, the lady's four eleven. She's the petitest little thing. She's like a little little cherub in the She's movie. She's like a porcelain doll. She's, She's like a beautiful. porcelain doll. Yeah, and uh, you know, I mean, it's just it's just something else to love. I mean, it's like there's a scene uh, where she is uh, her and her mom are. Uh, going to bed for the night and Dr. Morocco shows up and I just love the way it's like an old throwback to stuff that you, you didn't see read like old, uh, old English language text or whatever. It's like, sir, if you don't go away, I will have to scream that kind of thing with Morocco trying to come through the door going, dead yeah, Bella, you know, Bella love me or love my gorilla. <laughs> so, now, I will say this. Mank did say, Greg Mank did say one thing, that you said something about the blood going into the girl's arm. But I get the feeling, and this was, you know, quickly what he threw out there, is that if the blood mixed, then the woman would be with Eric. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's one of the darkest elements of this movie is it plays very carefully with the concept of bestiality. Yeah. And so let's talk about that for a little bit. You're an expert. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> we had what I'm familiar with, sir, or dogs. Oh, wait, no. Uh, hold on a second. Let's back up. a uh, Clip. No. What we have here <laughs> is the darkest element of this film is not something that I think you're going to find in Poe's story. It just doesn't exist there. There are a lot of carryovers from the story this is supposedly based on, but the idea and this is this is very much this is very much a post Darwin concept. The idea that if we are if we as human beings are so closely related to our cousins, the orangutan, the the gorilla, the the chimpanzee, all these different apes if we're so close, then is it possible for us to mate with them? Well, that is only barely not stated in this film. It's yeah. so close to being stated out loud that what he's doing, he's testing, he's mixing the gorilla's blood with the prostitute's blood, and he's discovering in that in that sequence where we see the uh, the prostitute you know tied to the cross we see that he has failed to find one who is not well you know with, without venereal disease this woman has got some kind of disease in her blood that he can he can suss out through his his microscope and therefore 
considers the the attempt to mix these two bloodlines to be completely useless for whatever reason, whatever mad scientist idea realizes he can't, this is not going to work. Whatever he's got in his head, it's not going to happen. So very clearly, the more he talks about it, it's it's almost, uh, you want to say you got to read between the lines, but to be honest, I don't think you do. I think it's very clear as soon as you realize what he's saying, which is, He's not eventually, he's not, his plan is not to take a lot of blood out of the gorilla and mix it with the woman's blood. What would be the point of that? No, 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 no. This mad scientist has got some plan to create a mixed simian homo sapien master race, maybe. I don't know. Who the, who the hell knows? But that dark aspect of this tale is without a doubt one of the things that I can only barely imagine is 1932. How in the hell did this get made? Because they're not hiding it, man. It's not, It's if you want to call it subtext, it's not really subtext. It's yeah. pretty much text. Well, it, it's one of those things where the scientist is saying stuff and everybody's like, okay, the scientist is talking scientist stuff, crazy scientist stuff. But when he goes... I want a woman, a human female, to mix with the blood of Eric the ape. And I, I mean, I've, I swear to God, for decades, I'm like, okay, he wants to mix the blood like he's crazy, so I don't give a shit what he's really saying. But think about it longer, yeah. mixing the blood, and you're like... Well, it's like it's like talking about bloodlines. If if you bloodlines, and that's what yeah. it means. It's eon eon is what it is. You right. Know? Well, it's also that thing. Uh, it's the thing where if you've ever uh, been around uh, breeders of cattle or horses or anything like that, this is how they talk. This yeah. is what they're. This is what they're talking about. And so and so we're literally saying. I mean, it's like when the prostitute's blood is not is not pure. He goes, "Your blood is rotten." rotten. Exactly. And it's like uh, she must have, you know, something, some sexual disease or whatever. Uh, You know, with this one, he tests uh, our our little starlet's blood. He's like, her blood is perfect. And then you're going to mix it. It's like, okay, so are you guys going for the honeymoon suite or what? (laughs) You know? I mean, I. I, Or does this mad doctor actually. See this being a threesome in some weird way because there the is something knows? about old films though that were smarter than we're giving them credit for. You, I mean, we're, you and I are talking about there's subtext or not subtext, and we should be. Oh, well, they're having to hide things because they know they can't they can't say it outright in some ways. Yeah, and and but there's a bunch of you know back then there's a bunch of nose picking kids. I don't even know if popcorn had been invented in the movie theater yet at that time, but they're watching <laughs> yes, the film. The mom goes, "Shut up and watch your movie." You know, and and he says this stuff, and it's just gibberish. It's kind of gibberish. It's it's kind of that brilliant in a way. But well, in the I mean, end, exactly. And, it's the, it's here, a mad scientist saying mad scientist shit, which really is in the film just serves to move the plot forward because he's giving you whatever crazy spiel that the mad scientist needs to give you to advance the plot enough along so that we get to the next whatever the hell is supposed to happen. So. The fact that it's so dark and and depraved, you know this this bizarre, uh, torturous 
string laden thing all the way back to uh, the fears that Darwinism, you know, this this movie plays on nothing but the fears of 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 a, a world, you know, beset by by Darwin and all the all the, all that science is doing is is disrespecting religion and kind of tearing it down and making everything be some kind of horrible physical grubby thing and that's the fear that they're playing on. But to the kids, to kids watching this, it's just the mad scientist being mad scientist so we yeah. can get to the good shit. It's him going, mwahaha. The thing yeah. is, is that Universal had two or three, well, two especially to me, really dark films. This is one of them. And I know what the other is. Yes, the one that I got uh, my cover nominated for Rondo this week. Uh, exactly. The Black Cat, which to me is very dark. Those two films are real dark. And then probably third would probably be uh, The Black Cat. For me, after third. that. I mean, no, 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 uh, not the black or the Raven. I'm sorry, the Raven. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. The Raven would be third, even though it's got some darkness to it. Some of it's pretty creepy. It's a little bit, a tiny bit lighter than the other two, and then it's also slightly more ridiculous in it, in it, yeah. in, in a way. But yeah, the only the only other thing that even creeps me out to this degree is way later, well, not way later, but later in the film, The Mad Ghoul, where yeah. Where the guy from King Kong, where Robert Armstrong is the news reporter who feels he's cracked the case or whatever, and like something out of a Hammer film, the ghoul grabs him at the behest of his scientist leader, pushes the guy down on down into the coffin that he's been hiding in to get his scoop, and and starts to go at him with a scalpel. Yeah, it shocked the hell out of me. I mean, I had seen it when I was a kid. But but I saw it again, you know, I mean, I've got a VHS that's been the last time I've seen it, but and I plan on getting the Blu-ray, but it, it that was it. But when it comes to it, uh, Murders in the Rue Morgue and The Black Cat. Now, is there anything else of that at that level for Universal? Not I mean, really, the real no. the real creepy, the real kind of like, yeah, somebody slipped something past the the well, I mean, some, this is still this stuff. is still pre-33. Of course, you know, Black Cat's not 30 when did the sensor kick in? When did that whole uh, around thirty three, thirty four? Yeah, but 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 uh, the black cat's thirty four, right? But it was already in production. That's why I mean, remember they toned that movie's very toned down. Even what we see now, remember they had to reshoot sections that just were not going to fly. Uh, so, I will I will I will say this right now just to get this on record because Rodney will his stuff will be archived in the uh, national. <laughs> The National Archives. National Archives. My my podcast will be. No, I don't think so. Okay. The Black Cat is for me probably. It might be Universal's greatest film. It's definitely in the top five greatest horror films ever made. I oh, I completely agree. Yeah. I, I think it's amazing. It's, it's amazing. brilliant. Yeah. So, but we're talking about Murders of the Rue Morgue. I think it's uh, it's got a. Uh, quality oh, well, wait to a minute! It. Before we before we breeze on by this, I will say. That James Whale did get some interesting subversive stuff by the censors in '35 with Bride of Frankenstein, but he did it. He knew by that time the only way he was going to do it is if he he played up the the humor within the story. Yeah, and I th- that's how he breezed by a few really subversive and dark things. Yeah. Uh, because he was he was smart enough to know it. Because by thirty five, you're not getting away with what you're getting away with in thirty two. So no, no, you're right. And and the thing is, is that that was that was that was witty. 
that was yeah. witty yeah. what he got away with. He he's like, you know, let's let's wink at the audience a little bit, but let's not. Let's let's uh, let it's a black comedy. It really well, is. You, you let the audience in on the joke while at the same time still providing the thrills. So. Yeah, what whereas uh, Murders in the Rue Morgue and the Black Cat they're not comedies. No. Matter of fact, they're, they're far from it. Yeah. They're not letting you in on anything other than the dark underbelly of what they're showing you. So scumbags. <laughs> well, and I love them. I, I, it's, it's fantastic. I, I, this movie has always been uh, a favorite of mine. I, it, it is a weird, quirky film. It is a movie that I can certainly understand when people Weaver, Weaver says at a certain point in the, in, in uh, the universal horrors book that, for a lot of people, there's a certain there's a certain element that's missing from this, and that might that may be the fun element. In other words, this movie is so dark that it's it, it doesn't have that uh, that fun element that the other horror films made in the 30s by Universal would have. So mm. it, it is so dark, it is so dour and a little depressing at times. <laughs> I mean, it, it ends it ends with a with a, a happy, I you know, a fairly happy ending. But. Well, but the thing is, is that once again, we come back to the parts that people made fun of, which, which, yeah, you make fun of, I don't agree with it. Uh, I think that the guy, the good guy is a hairy hair shirt. I think he's a airy attaboy <laughs> or addy attaboy or whatever the hell, airy, airy attaboy doesn't sound too good. I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, he's, he's a good, good guy. The, the the lead and the lead lady in this film is a, a, a good good girl yeah. uh, the supporting cast everybody who's good is good everybody who is rotten is rotten uh, there's a few weird guys like the incredibly impressive like somebody who stepped out of a Norman Rockwell painting channeling Washington Irving uh, the uh, guy at the morgue. Who oh, who's was, an incredible character hey well yeah. listen, I will I will say though I will defend uh, Pierre Dupin in this film, for if for for one reason only, which is that um, his the character is very different from the story to this because I mean uh, in the story right. wasn't he wasn't a medical student or anything like that, but and he certainly uh, wasn't romancing anyone. This, the, the story had no room for such things, but I was impressed with what is carried over from the character in this in the post story, which is that both in the film and in the story, the guy is doing this this investigation of these prostitutes that are getting fished out of the, out of the, the river. Uh, he's doing this investigation on his own. No one's pressing him to do this. He's not a detective. He's not uh, someone who's going to get paid if he figures something out. It's just that he's noticed that these women, it's being assumed that they drowned, but there's no water in their lungs. And so that's what causes him to start, you know, trying to figure out what killed them. And he start and he notices they have the same wounds on their arms as if someone has been, poking around in, uh, right. in their in their upper arm for some reason and yeah. starts checking their blood so the, the it's that's a carryover from the story in that this guy isn't you know some kind of police detective or anything of that nature and and let's remember that the the standout thing about this post story the original post story is this is kind of considered the very first detective story ever written yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Dupin uh, on on the page really kind of you know he's the he's the guy that later on would serve as a template for characters like Sherlock Holmes and Hercule Poirot and all these different, you know, very cerebral characters who sit and figure things out. And like I say, the only carryover really for the character is that element of him not being someone whose job this is, but it's something he's more 
drawn to out of curiosity. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. I think that, um, I think that's where this movie draws its lines. It's like, if you're going to go to, to the dark side, you know, if you're going to go with Lugosi and I don't blame the ape, the ape didn't do anything. By the way, let's talk about the ape for a minute. We talk about Gamora. Yeah. Doing, uh, great uh, ape performer, but he the is great ape performer. undermined. He is undermined in this film by that choice when they did some reshoots to have all those close-ups of the the chimp. Which I love. I love that chimp. Well, here's the thing. I think the inserts with the chimp work very well in the first half of the movie. I think they're great. Yeah. But as the movie goes on, as you get into those sections where you're having to have the chimp uh, communicate, kind of much more uh, violent facial expressions. It's not just that the express the expressions are okay. It's that for some reason the the shot is t- it's it's not tight enough on the ape's face and it's distracting all the space around the ape's face and it keeps reminding you that that's not really what that thing looks like. Because well, you- I mean, and you can't help that. I mean, here here's my attitude. If that's the case, then they should have looked at the ape they were shooting at the Los Angeles Zoo. And then they should have said, let's build an ape costume based on it. Because I love looking at the real ape. Now, I will say this. Gamora really did uh, some performance stuff that reminds me of looking at, like, an orangutan when it's walking across the room. And it's, yeah. like, it's got one arm way up in the air and all that kind of stuff. But, look, we, we let's run back to the 1932 filter and say, this is the limited ability that they had at the time to show us an ape and then to show the real ape in there just so that the real real close-ups we've got some kind of a we've got some kind of a real gorilla there a real ape which is was a beautiful looking creature i I look at it and go boy this this great looking great looking animal but then the but then the 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 other guys got to do it and you look at the two and you go they're not the same thing let's be honest let it go. You know, it's 1932. Let it go. They're doing what they can. But I still think that Gamora really had studied those kind of creatures and and was doing a pretty good uh, – later, later the mantle would be taken up by – what is it? What is his name? Janusz Prochaska, the guy that did all the stuff on, on – uh, like the Mugatu on Star Trek and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, it's a, it's a different kind of thing. You know, our, 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 our pal Bob Burns. Uh-huh. You know, playing gorillas and stuff like that—it's—it's it's not easy. And then, and then some of it got perfected. I mean, by the time you get to the incredible movie, the absolutely incredible movie, Greystoke, oh, with yes. those with those apes in there, where you're like, yeah, I know it's people in there, but it's—it's it's also showing me that it's not. My dog's over there snoring. It sounds like a. I swear to God, it sounds like a tugboat. It sounds like a tugboat on the on the on the uh, on in the shore on Manhattan or something like that. You know, Christ. it wouldn't be a podcast with Mark Maddox if we didn't have the dogs interrupt us holy, in some bizarre holy fashion. Crap! The dog the dog struck an iceberg. He's like got the horn. Uh, uh. Anyway, I'm like I, th- I thought somebody was moving furniture for a minute. What a funny-looking man. He's a-showing himself. Did you notice his accent? I wonder where he comes from. I never heard an accent like that. Silence! I'm Dr. Miracle, Monsieur, Madame. And I'm not a sideshow charlatan. 
So if you expect to witness the usual carnival, hocus pocus, just go to the box office and get your money back. I'm not exhibiting a freak. A monstrosity of nature. But a milestone in the development of life. The shadow of Eric Day hangs over us all. The darkness before the dawn of man. <laughs> so, right? don't be afraid. It's only a baboon. I'm not afraid. Neither am I. Listen to him, brothers and sisters. He's speaking to you. Can you understand what he says, or have you forgotten? I have relearned his language. Listen. Well, I'm going to say, and one of my final points about this movie is that, once again, with one of these universal movies from the thirties where the running time is so brief. Yeah. Um, I do feel that I wish this movie were longer. I, I, I don't necessarily need it to be another 10 minutes in length, but I wouldn't, I also wouldn't be unhappy if it were because I love basking in the, the dank, dark feel of this piece. And I, and I say that at the same time, and I realize that's why one one of the reasons, probably why, for a lot of classic horror film fans, this is this is one that they're not as enamored of because of that feeling, that kind of oppressive and dark feeling, the 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 nastiness of it, the the cruelty, and it doesn't have the the sparks that the equally dark Black Cat has, where you have Karloff and Lugosi kind of going at each other, which can help you it's it's kind of the sugar helping the 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 sour medicine go down a little bit a little bit easier in a way and this movie doesn't have that this yeah. has uh, this has an amazing performance central performance from Lugosi but there's no way to get uh your you know your possibly camp jollies depending on your point of view and your level of inebriation <laughs> that you can get with the black cat uh you can't get that with this movie because this movie is in a lot of ways, I'm, like I say, I'm shocked it came out when it did. I'm shocked it was made when it was because it just repeatedly bashes you over the head with this bizarre, you know, Darwin-influenced, uh, you know, evolution as horror tale on its own kind of oppressive thing. Uh, this this bizarre view that this film puts forth of uh, people out there actively attempting to mate human and and ape is dark enough on its own i mean i've lord knows i've read enough pulp stories from that period of time where there you know these psychotic concepts come out come out to play and run around on the page but to see them on screen in 1932 is still a bit of a shock yeah. and i think that's i think that is one of the things that puts a little distance between uh people who would be bigger fans of this movie than some of the other movies from that time. And also, I think that anything that allows you to distance yourself from 
you know, an aspect of the story does allow you to then start nitpicking other pieces of other pieces of the film as well. And the thing is, I I consider this to be an astonishing piece of work. Uh-huh. I think it's flawed. I think it's clear that there are pieces missing, and it's and and and, and, I, and so there are some things in it that I don't think work very well. But overall, I think this is an incredibly effective movie, and I'm just really happy that now we can see it in high definition and, and that incredible cinematography by Carl Frund can really be appreciated because I've never seen it look this good and it's 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 possible to just do freeze frames of some of these sequences just, just specific shots the I mean we haven't even talked about uh, how incredible like the the way the whole carnival sequence start uh, looks at the beginning of the film it's just it's, there's so much detail there's so many characters in there there's so many people milling around and all this stuff going on the the hoochie coochie dancers and then the, all of the all the detail built into that the the things that I'd forgotten about just being able to see it in H, in HD the 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 bizarre stage stuff that's going on with those uh, American Indians that are that have supposedly been carted over you know to to be on, be on a stage and to and to uh, you know be some kind of, basically kind of a version of freaks for people to pay pay money to see yeah all of this stuff all of this detail that's just crammed into all these scenes and then the incredible mad scientist set and then the the that wackadoo choice to mount the camera on the swing in that sequence, yeah. which is just astonishing. And it works perfectly. It works really well, even though it's constantly, you know, throughout the entire scene, it's constantly drawing attention to itself, but it still works so well within the context of that scene as well. It's just, there's so many joys in this movie. Yeah. So many things that I love that, yeah, I could nitpick, uh, this, you know, there are, sequ- there are scenes where some of the acting isn't quite right. But then at the same time, I want to defend it because... Well, damn it! That it 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 it, it works. It, it works to its advantage at times as well. So, I love this film, and I'll I'll defend it. Uh, I'll defend it uh, with a scalpel if need be, and uh, I'll even I'll even sick a, a, a giant ape on you if I have to. So, uh, uh, for me, this is um, you know how we, we talk the German expressionism is in this film. Oh yeah, but. I, I was talking about this earlier, and now I think I've kind of come up with a bit of a, a, a tag for this film in my own head. Okay. It's a bohemian horror film. Uh-huh. In other words, it's got it's got the German expressionism, but it has so many things. It's got poor people, like La Boheme does. It's got it's got people that are struggling to to make it. It's got a, a, a lot of visual artistry. Um, it's sort of like, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a very, uh, it's a very beautiful artsy sort of a life that these people are in, even though you can tell by all the buildings, the buildings are old and dilapidated and they're, 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 they're shifted and tilting and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's, yeah, they're, yeah, they're, yeah, they're poor or they're not wealthy. I mean, I wouldn't, I I don't know if, you know, what, what the relative position would be. I mean, you've got, you've got students, you've got medical students and everything like that. Dr. Morocco obviously is not, is not wealthy either, but the beautiful tilted looks like of where he lives, he, you know, there's that tent that he's in with all the drawings on it. And then there's the house that he's broken broken into obviously informed into a, a lab. And then there's the, the girlfriend's home. 
uh, that the guys visiting are at, and they're at even the rooftops, even though they're beautiful and tilted and everything, they don't look like they're the house of some millionaires or something like that. So, to me, it's it's just beautiful to watch this movie. It's like watching a moving painting. Um, everybody does a great job. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna complain about anybody. I would say my only complaint which is funny because I don't think I've complained about a single thing about this film uh, in the entire time that we've been talking. My only complaint is, and I know this is probably critical to the plot, or maybe it isn't, is all these different people with that one extended scene of humorous relief where they're trying to figure out what the, uh, yeah. the language is of the killer. And that's taken directly from the original story. And to be honest, it's something yeah. that I don't think they really needed to keep in the film. Right. Um, and But but other than that, and even that's not terrible, other than that, I watch this film and I go, what a beautiful – it's like looking at a moving painting or a, 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 a living etching or something like that. I give it very high marks. I, I'm not going to give – I'm not going to put, put a number on it or anything like, you know – eight out of 10 or anything like that. It's just beautiful to watch. I never get tired of it. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's a great film. I think the, uh, the only shame about this movie to me is that because it did not do well at the time, it kind of uh, shit can director, uh, Robert Flory's career. And he never really was able to work at this, at the, you know, at this level again. I mean, he made a lot yeah. of movies when he's, when, Universal let him go. He made a lot of movies, like four or five a year, for a very long time. Yeah, but he never really got to go back to the horror to the horror field, except for maybe The Beast with Five Fingers in 1946 with Peter wow. Lorre. Okay, okay, he made that, and that's a that's a great little movie. But I mean, he made I mean he made a lot of movies. Don't get me wrong. I mean, he made a Boston Blackie movie. He made The Face Behind the Mask, which is a pretty damn impressive movie. Yeah, as well. Uh, he made one of the least of the, uh, the Weissmuller Tarzan movies, uh, Tarzan and the Mermaids, but and well, and then to be honest, I mean, he did a lot of work in television as well. So it's did not he as if do he, did he do an Outer Limits episode or more than one yes, Outer Limits? He did. What, 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 uh, he one did, did at he least do? one. He did Moonstone. Okay. Okay. And he did and he did several uh, Twilight Zone episodes as well: The Long Morrow, uh, Perchance to Dream, and The Fever. Okay. Uh, but he did, yeah. He did also. Alfred Hitchcock presents. If you if you want to talk about stuff we've probably seen, and he did it. Yeah. He did one of my all time favorite episodes of a thriller, The Incredible Doctor Marcuson. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, ultimately we're talking about a satisfying career, satisfying life. I mean, oh, yeah. he, I don't know. You you interview him from the grave, and he tells you, "No, I my life sucks." Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he <laughs> goes, "No, I'm I was happy." The thing is, is that is that guys like you and me. And thousands, if not millions of other people are going back and looking at this stuff and going, you know, that particular episode of Thriller is awesome. Oh, it's by the guy that did Murders in the Room Morgue. I mean, yeah. you connect the dots and you really do see greatness in there. Um, you know, I mean, the guy was the guy was damn good. And, and like I say, I would say it's definitely a shame because, I mean, he saw it as a, a disappointment that this movie wasn't a success because he had, you know, he had visions for other other types of things along these lines that, of course, never really came to fruition. But at the same time, this guy worked in Hollywood and in, in movies and television for decades. So, you know. 
Yeah. G- so give, he give the man his due. So he worked and he put the put the you know he brought home the bacon. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And um, you know, in the end, here we are, two guys in the year 2020. Somebody tell Robert Flory from Beyond the Grave 2020. We're talking about what a great job he did. And Rodney brought up stuff from, well, I brought up Outer Limits and, and you brought up uh, Thriller. Twilight Zone. Oh, thriller. Thriller yeah, and thriller. Twilight Zone. So, you know, that your favorite episode of, 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 of an entire series was his. That, that should make a man feel proud. And he should feel proud. This is, this is a movie that um, I'm so glad that now it's available in HD. Of course, anytime something comes out in a new, uh, not just Blu-ray, but any kind of new video release, that's a, a chance for a, a whole new audience to discover it. A whole new generation of people who may have never even heard of this thing. They, they'll see it's a, a Bela Lugosi film from the 30s. And I got to say, to a degree, people who are coming to this movie fresh, for the Blu-ray, first of all, they're getting the best presentation that I think the film's had in forever, possibly yeah. ever. Yeah. And at the same time, I would really love to get feedback from people who've never seen this movie until they saw it on Blu-ray because this one is going to peel your eyelids back if you're unprepared for it. Um, would, would would we say that back uh, with Frankenstein, Dracula, this film, et cetera, et cetera, they were all shot in 35? 35 yeah. millimeter? So I know they weren't shot as far, as far as I know. I mean, remember it was all, it was nitrate film at the time, but yeah. 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 And so, uh, I know that when you get to 4k, uh, somewhere between 4k and 8k, you can't, I mean, the eye is, I mean, 8k is apparently beyond the eye's ability. So in a lot of cases, 4k is too. So yeah, 4k really gets there, you know, like that new version, that new copy of 2001, a space odyssey, but you're, you're looking at it, and so other than Blu-ray, which is really close to that, not not really close, but getting in that ballpark, uh, we're talking about, you know, at my home with a 70-some-inch, 80-inch television set and watching uh, Murders in the Room Org on a Blu-ray, I mean, we're, we're talking getting close to darn what would be at a, a, at a decent theater. Now, some people can go, well, no, it's not really gigantic. Well, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're 50 feet away in a movie theater watching a, 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 a 35 millimeter print and you're at my house 10 feet away from an 80 inch television screen and it's, you know, may, you know, maybe not Blu-ray, but 4K, you're, you're getting close to the same visual experience. And people go, well, yeah, but you're not, you're, but you're a lot closer. Yeah, but it's clear, like you're, you know what I'm saying? Oh, I agree. I completely I, agree. I get sort of, I get sort of like nutty about that when people are like, no, no, and it's not the same thing because you're not sitting and looking at it away from far away. Well, it's like in the dark. What the, what the hell, dude? It's all yeah, about. My, my shoes aren't sticking to the floor either, but hey. Yeah. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> what, what kind of, what kind of theater are you at? Anyway, so, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, so uh, we're getting to the point where I hate to say this, I'm going to the theater less and less. Of course, there's not, you know, Murders in the Room Morgue isn't playing at the local cinema either. But I, I like the fact that I am kind of in charge of my own movie collection in my home. You know? Well, yeah, that's one of the 
biggest benefits of having a collection of hard copy film. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that we need to, we need to really push that in this world because, you know, there's more about streaming and, you know, are you just going to pay for the film and have it stored on online someplace? I don't trust that. I mean, Oh, I don't either. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I still buy, I still buy movies sometimes even on a whim. The other day I bought the, uh, Tony Rome lady in cement, uh, uh, copies from Twilight Time, you know, the uh, Frank Sinatra yeah. uh, uh, crime films. Um, I'm just like, yeah, I mean, I I have to have that. I bought the movie Madigan, the Richard Widmark movie. Um, I, I just had to have it. I, I don't want somebody telling me when and where, and I don't even want to have to go up online and pull down you know, hope, hopefully there, you know, what happens one day when one of these, you know, companies goes belly up, is my film still sitting there for me to watch that I paid for that I paid for permanently? Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. So there's a lot of writing going on about that nowadays. And it's sort of like, you know, we need to, we need to stick together on that hard, hard copy media people. If you, if you really want to be able to see this damn thing, you got to buy hard copies. Also, if you would like to hear the the excellent commentary tracks on this recent Blu-ray, yeah, that's worth the price of admission alone. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about Greg Mank, Gary Rhodes. They did a great job. You talked about Tom Weaver earlier. Uh, yeah. They're all great guys. They do wonderful. These guys are bulldozers. They just shovel information from you. It's like it's sort of like oh, get out the notepad. The professors are talking. Uh-huh. Uh, but I appreciate them greatly. They're, they, I, sometimes, I have to say, sometimes I've gotten to the point now where I miss there being a commentary track. Like, for, okay, for instance, the other night I sat down and finally watched uh, the, the Fritz Lang silent science fiction movie, The Woman in the Moon. Oh, I love that movie. Oh, it's yeah, great. I never, I never watched it before, and it's great. Yeah. I'm glad I got to see this beautiful restoration that they recently broadcast. Well, they broadcast a few months ago on TCM. It's beautiful. But yeah. I have to say, as much as I enjoyed the movie, I really, I really loved it. At the same time, I was, I, I, there was that part of me that's going, damn it, where I, I'm watching this, you know, I'm watching this in a way that does not provide me the option to hear a commentary track about the film. Well, it helps. I mean, uh, you know, with most movies that that have commentary tracks, I watch the film very intently, the film, and then I usually take the disc and I go into the studio. I have a large television in there as well. And I put it on, and I let the r- movie run a second time. With the it's track. almost like it's yeah, it's like it's like listening to the radio when you yeah. glance up and see what portion of the film they're talking about, and uh, you you get to uh, you know like like when I was listening to Greg Mank talking about uh, murders in the Rue Morgue, I was painting. Uh, now uh, Tom Weaver, buddy, I'm going to tell you. Three times at different times in my life, I've been doing Creature from the Black Lagoon artwork or just Creature artwork. I've let his all three of the films run with Tom Weaver commentary playing while I'm doing artwork. And I just watch the film and then I let him run with his, you know, with his commentary. And it's like, it's great. You know, it's like listening to, you know, an interesting radio show. But boy, these guys really cram the information in. True. I, I, I have to say, I absolutely love the track that uh, 
Weaver put together for uh, Attack of the Crab Monsters a few years ago. It's, uh, yeah. it's absolutely fascinating. He had Bob Burns with him. There's just well, now we're now we're getting off topic. Let's folks, yeah. uh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna shut this thing down. If you've never seen Murders in the Room Org, uh, both of us obviously highly recommend the film. It is yeah. a unique piece of universal horror from the uh, golden 30s that really does stand up over time. It's got a lot going on, uh, bubbling under the surface, and sometimes those bubbles pop right up into your face. So uh, this has got uh, some surprises. Even in 2020, this movie's got some surprises for you, depending on what you think you're going to see. Yeah. For sure. Mark, thank you very much for sitting down to talk about this film. I have no idea what we'll talk about next, but uh, this was a good choice. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, we, you and I, somebody brought it up. Uh, you, you uh, We were talking. It was like, was, yeah, let's do it. It was like, <laughs> it was like that. So, yeah, this, this worked out great. I appreciate it. appreciate you having me on. Mark, thank you once again. All right, buddy. See you later. Take care. Change my mind Ever since that time